1: You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast.
0: Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode.
2: Presented by Hunting Exchange, a marketplace for serious hunters by serious hunters.
0: Welcome back everybody to another
1: episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. This is episode 301. We did episode 300 on Monday with Mr. Clifton Denny, and we're here to talk about it. Jacob, how are you doing?
0: Uh, Doing well, man. Doing well. Sitting in the the man cave of the great and powerful Michael Pike. Back (laughs) on the podcast again. What's going on, Mike?
2: Uh, Nothing much. Just chilling with my my new dog over here.
0: Yeah. So everybody's got dogs now. Shoot, man. I got a puppy. Andrew's got his pups, and Mike's got a dog now. Dude.
2: He's not really mine, but I'll I'll take him for the time being.
0: He's going to claim him. Yep, absolutely. He's a, he's a bigger version of Bridger, but not to get too, too sidetracked. Yeah, man, we got an awesome outro for today. Pretty excited about it. Uh, Clifton's episode's getting some pretty cool feedback so far. You know, we're recording this uh, on Tuesday, uh, so the episode's been out for roughly a day and a half now. It's going on two days, and the feedback's been pretty awesome so far.
1: Yeah, we've gotten a lot of good feedback on it. Um, it was a pretty... It was a pretty different episode than we'd normally done in the past. Uh, Just the kind of subjects we covered is something that I've been wanting to cover for a long time, and it it has to do with how the wind interacts with terrain, basically, and I mean, we've looked for quite a while to find a guy who can talk about that uh, at the depth that that Clifton talked about it, and it it was just, it was really interesting because we always talk about, kind of we mentioned this in the uh, Monday's episode, you always talk about the wind moving across the land, it's kind of like water in a way. Um, and even kind of knowing that, even though that might not be exactly correct, even knowing that over the last couple of years, every time I'm looking at where I'm going to be hunting, I'm still looking kind of all around, all over the place. Uh, or, or I'm not looking around all over the place. I'm looking at the spot I'm planning to hunt, and I'm not really taking into account well, what's, the, what's the ridge uh upwind of it doing and and the ridge upwind of that ridge you know if 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 I'm hunting two smaller ridges and and off in the background there's a there's another ridge that's way taller than those two well that's going to have like a dramatic effect on the wind so uh, I think all that was really really fascinating stuff and kind of gives me a little bit different perspective on when I'm looking at a map kind of what what I'm going to expect going in I mean it's a it's not like It's like a little bit of a perspective change that I think is going to make a big difference because it's like one of those things, it's just like a little thing that you kind of correct and you're like, oh, wow, this makes a lot more sense now. At least that's how it is in my mind, but uh, what what about you, Jacob?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the thing is the the one big takeaway is looking at big picture on the map of not just the, like, if if you're talking hill country here, like what we're talking, not just what's happening on your ridge, but also what's happening potentially with the wind and air currents you know, the ridge over from you upwind, uh, especially if that ridge is, you know, a lot higher in elevation than where you're currently hunting at on your ridge. Um, so, you know, having all those kind of things to play in a factor is pretty interesting, but also understanding, hey, you know, like what Clifton talked about with the saddles and how, of course, you know, people know, you know, deer use saddles, not always going through the saddle, but sometimes traveling around the edge of the saddle uh, as they parallel the ridge, uh, knowing where to key in on that with the, uh, you know, with the, you know, wind currents to be successful, is, you know, quite interesting. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of interesting takeaways from the episode. I'll say this. We've had a ton of feedback from it. Just like people like messaging us. And actually Clifton reached out to me today saying that he's had, he was asking how the episode's doing because he's like, dude, I'm getting blown up by people on uh, Facebook <laughs> and Instagram, like asking, cause they want to see like a visual representation of what he talked about. And I had to tell some listeners, I was like, Hey, listen, you know, as Clifton Is, you know, kind of, we talked about in the episode, you know, he's going to do a full video of exactly what he's looking at on the maps, how he sets up the whole nine yards in the field use and also with the maps to show people exactly what it's going to look like. And that's going to come out on his YouTube channel, On Your Own Outdoors, uh, sometime, he said, uh, first part of December. Uh, So a few weeks out, uh, hopefully he's going to have that done and published so people can see a visual representation of exactly how he's, you know, keying in off these features and also keying in with the win in mind. So,
1: Yep. yep. Mike, uh were you able to listen to that episode?
2: Yeah, I'd started it and uh Jacob rolled up about probably what, fifteen minutes in. Yeah. And <laughs> so
0: We we were and we were just getting into it. He was like he's like, Man, this is this is some heavy stuff. <laughs> yeah, I told
2: him, I was like, I really wish I'd have got to listen to the full thing, um, because some of the stuff I heard just was very, very interesting for sure. So, so I gonna be reaching out to him too.
1: Well, Jacob, there was some stuff in the episode that you were kinda of wanting to to clarify. I think you said like there's a point you were trying to make uh in the podcast that you felt like you could've could have done a better job on that we talked about oh. earlier today. Uh, what ah. it's something, something about like that, that fallout and kind of that that dead area, if you will. Um yep. what were you saying about that?
0: Yeah, so this is something I haven't actually uh talked to Clifton about this, but when he was talking about the fallout, so when the air, I give you know, for some reason Andrew didn't like the analogy of east to west ridges with a north wind, <laughs> but uh, at least body language-wise, that's what Clifton was keen in on in the video. <laughs> Michael, you should have saw it. It was entertaining. Um, but with the east to west ridge and you have a north wind, that fallout on the south side, so as that air is coming over the top of that ridge, depending on the air vo- the wind velocity – and, you know, his analogy, 8 miles an hour compared to 18 miles an hour, the fallout where that wind actually comes back down the backside of the ridge can change elevation-wise between how fast the velocity is going. And he calls it, uh, you know, the dead zone or that, that area where you're kind of – you're underneath where that air column coming over the top of the ridge. So if it's 8 miles an hour, he, in his analogy, depending on the ridge and the steepness of the ridge on, on the windward side – um, you know, it could be the top third or the top quarter um, of that ridge is where that fall is happening, where that wind's kind of coming back down, kind of eddying and swirling Um where, you know, if it's 18 or 20 miles an hour, it might be at the bottom fourth of the ridge is where that wind current's really coming back down. And if it's high wind like that, you potentially have a very large dead space where it's like a high pressure pocket is the way I was trying to now. I did a terrible job on the podcast saying this, but, I'll, I'll do a better job here, hopefully. If you think about you know, if you drive a pickup truck and you have your tailgate up, when you're driving, you know, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour, you could have leaves and stuff in the back of your truck and they kind of like swirl around. They kind of like stay in the bed of your truck. And every now and then something might shoot out the side, but a lot of times they just kind of stay in there. Like whatever's in there, bottles, whatever, just stay in there. They don't really fly out unless you're going super, super fast, uh, which Michael would know a lot about. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, uh, as long as it's you know a moderate speed, you know, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour, that stuff stays in there because it's like a high pressure. So as that air comes over the top of the, the cab of the truck, it's forming like a high pressure underneath that where all that air is getting forced down and it's scooting across the top of it going off the back of the truck. Um, same thing, is, was trying, it was, I was trying to do this analogy on the podcast and ask him about it. With that dead zone, what that air is really doing in that dead zone and one thing that I'm thinking is with that high pressure, especially with a high velocity wind like that, yeah, there's going to be a certain point down that ridge where you get close to that fallout and you're starting to get that updraft of wind where it's starting to kick back up. But my thought is if you hunted above that spot, wherever that is on the ridge, and this would be different for every situation, you could almost be hunting in an area with that high pressure of, like again, all the air coming over the top of the ridge that's like it's stagnant. It's like nothing's moving. Right. And it's moving uh, above you and below you, but not right. But not there. right there. Yeah. And I'm like, if that's the case, you know, based off what I'm thinking, also like what he talked about, it's almost like you could hunt right there and get away with murder. And this, the deer could not smell you, even though he might be quote unquote downwind the air's just stagnant. It's not really moving right there. Now, thermals could play a big, van, a big part of this. You know, if you're on the sunny side of a ridge, it might be kind of crazy and hectic, because you may have some upward rising thermals automatically, even with this high wind coming over the top, it could be really swirly. But maybe a day is a little more kind of overcast, uh, but high winds, dude, it might be something worth looking at. It's like hunting that high pressure pocket on the backside of the ridge where the air is kind of stagnant. Uh, again, above the fallout uh, on the high wind days, I don't know. That might be a little. That might be something to key in off of. Yeah. So, Mike, what's your thought on that?
2: I think it's very interesting. and It's something uh, I think Michael Yates has talked to us about. Uh, there's some some neat little things that happen. He, I think he said uh, also, like, you, you kind of have, like, that same kind of effect um, on the edge of some of your harder transitions. Like, if you have short pines that are really, really thick, as soon as they come over, and, you know, it's just like an airplane wing. Um, if you think about it, like, you know over the top is moving faster than the lower and what it what it does is it creates this little vacuum um right or or is yeah, it the other way around i well, think bottom's moving
0: i'm not a pilot I'm not. <laughs> i would think cuz the shape of the air the shape of the wing is going to be it's going to be moving <clears> faster <throat> underneath the wing than over the top of the wing cuz the, yeah, the wing shaped right because that curve but anyways <laughs> we're it, not engineers
2: it, yeah it creates this little little vacuum like when it drops off like mm-hmm. it just basically could you hear that
0: you're good <laughs> mike's dog's just getting all comfy
2: yeah yeah uh but anyways um you have this little vacuum in it and that's essentially what he's saying is that little vacuum portion is changing up on the hillside um up and down so
0: i just gonna tell you guys this is a side track. mike's got the this is the cutest dog man uh, I'll, I'll tell you it's a bigger version of bridger and he's dude, i'll tell you if y'all don't want him to i'll take him home with me he'll be pepper's best bud yeah um <laughs>
2: he's a he's a stray
0: <laughs> oh dude he's goofy um anyways but yeah no you, you're right again it's like the vacuum effect but you know clifton talked about hunting the windward side of these ridges but also you know in some situations the, the leeward side the back side of the ridges based off the different situations and i find it super interesting always around the whole vacuum thing i just, I just that's something i would just i would like to talk to clifton about again whether or not with that high pressure of kind of the air effect between the, the fallout and the top of the ridge, if that's something they can be huntable, especially in a high wind situation where again the air is kind of stagnant, it's kind of sitting there. And again, I just I think it makes sense. But the thing is, I don't know if it would make sense for a buck to travel right there because if if the air is kind of stagnant, he doesn't really have any kind of advantage traveling. But I thought about this: if you were calling and you were trying to call a deer to you, that might be the best scenario possible. Because no matter what, he can't really get your wind if it's the air stagnant sitting there.
2: Right, and um, and that's one of the things that you know we'll discuss, I, I guess, on the hunting beast a lot was that thermal tunnel is what they called it, like, and that's where that air is kind of wrapping around right there, so they they can um can kind of smell above them and below them, like you know. At that one point, they can catch that air that's coming off of the mountain, and then thermals, you know, potentially pushing up from the bottom, and so it allows them a a greater range. But if you are in that little pocket, you know, especially if it's a lot bigger, you know, say the wind speed is a lot bigger, um, then, you know, it could potentially, you know, be a good spot for you.
0: You're you're on track. You're on track. it'd
2: It'd be a lot better, my input, if I listened to the podcast but
0: yeah well we're just, we're just going off history but um you know it's something hey, Jacob. interesting i
1: mean you know that uh you know that dog uh, the the uh, the lady with the Malwall. um i think her name was melissa that does the search yep. and rescue didn't she talk about that in some capacity where she was talking about like you go into a bowl and there's like basically like a scent ring that kind of goes around the like a uh, thermal hub where a dog might hit that and kind of follow the contour line around uh do you remember what i'm talking about here
0: yeah, yeah, she yeah, so this is a uh a woman we met at the uh Gun Dog yourself uh, training day up at uh Rusty Gun and Kennels back in April, March April, whatever, of this, yeah, like this year. And um there was a woman there named Melissa, I can't remember Melissa's last name, but she does a search and rescue um up in Virginia and I think also West Virginia too. And does a lot of stuff up in the mountains for like lost hikers. And uh anyway, she's been doing that for like 25 years. Like she's been doing it for an extremely long time trained dogs. And One thing that she had mentioned to me was, because we were talking about thermals and wind currents and stuff, and it was really interesting, her amount of knowledge for it, um, was when you were going into, like yeah, like you said, like a hub. She called it a bowl, but like a thermal hub where you have multiple drainages kind of coming together. You're coming over the top of the ridge, especially with a rising thermal, you know, late morning. um, There would be a point where the dog would go on alert if like that person's in that bowl somewhere. Once the dog, they came over that ridge and dropped into that bowl at a certain elevation line, those dogs, the dog would start picking up on it. And then once you found that area, you would travel. They said they would take the dogs and they would travel uh, linear wise around the bowl at that elevation line and find the person. So it's like at some point, wherever you are on that ridge in that bowl you have multiple drains coming over like that scent kind of pulls up as it goes up and down the ridge, pulls up at that elevation line around it. Um, and that's that she explained that with the, uh, you know, tracking people. Like it was very, very common.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> if you find uh, beds at a certain location, uh always check the elevation because nine times out of 10, a lot of those deer will be bedded along that same elevation too. So even on different could, ridges. Yeah. Even on different ridges. doesn't matter if you find them at 600 foot, you know, you check all the surrounding areas, and around 600 foot, you're going to find the beds. Mm-hmm.
0: There's, there's got to be something happening at that point that they're keying in on. Right. Where they're having some kind of advantage based off where they're bedding at. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, Melissa absolutely talked about that. She just talked about, like, kind of that, that tunnel effect where, again, someone would be up on a ridge, and with the, with the rising thermals, but also, you know, a wind coming over the top of the ridge, it would just keep that, scent kind of pulled up at a certain elevation line you know within a not, not it's not like all at 180 feet but within a, a, a range on a really steep side of a mountain uh, that's where that scent would be at and then they'd go down the elevation line until they find the person so yeah very interesting
1: yeah another thing uh that i wanted to talk about was you know we kept talking about the whole east west ridge thing and uh i think uh clifton probably misunderstood what i was getting at there uh it's not the fact that like uh east west ridge like oh it's too clean cut or whatever it i was more trying to ask about well what happens when you have that east and west ridge and you have like a northeast or northwest wind or or something like that like you're starting to get those quartering winds and it's not that perfect uh north wind that that we kept using as an example because the whole north wind thing is is super easy to visualize uh you know it's kind of like he said it's kind of like taking the leaf blower and blowing it at a piece of plywood at an angle which um is a great thing to do for I mean I know a lot of our listeners probably own a leaf blower uh so that would be a pretty easy thing for them to do you know get some flour or something or, or some or some kind of dust uh some baking to, powder
0: or sir whatever yeah like baby like powder. yeah
1: some kind of baby powder or something like that and and see what it does um but I was asking more about like the quartering winds and everything uh just because Um, not only like the wind isn't always out of the North, but also the Ridge that you're hunting might not be oriented exactly that way or whatever. So you're going to get like, it's just inevitable. You're going to get a lot of like weird kind of quartering winds. And, uh, I don't know. I feel like you can kind of go off the deep end with it because when you look at how the, all the ridges lay, how the wind is going to be kind of ramping off this one and, and then hitting that one how much that's going to change the wind direction. So, I mean, you can go pretty deep with it. Uh, so it can get pretty complicated, but, um, that's, that's kind of what I was trying to get at. So I'd be curious to know if y'all have any kind of opinion on that on, you know, what do you think like that angling wind? I mean, how's that going to change things?
2: I don't know about that in particular, but, uh, one thing that I've been noticing in the past few years is that if you have a really, really big, um, valley, uh, that, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to matter, like what wind direction. Like it would be um, better if it was somewhat coming, like if uh, like let's say let's let's use this. Um, let's say we have a north to south uh, ridge, okay, and you've got a wind coming out of the south. Um, that that big valley will shoot up. It, all of that air will shoot up that main valley and you can get a bunch of different wind directions for every, uh, s- every single, like, you know, for a secondary point, like if mm. you've got two secondary points, the little uh, draw that goes up in between the secondary points, that wind will change. And, and you'll get like, say like an East and West wind in those, even though the wind is out of the South that day, it's like, it shoots up like all of this, air shoots up and then it branches off and you can get some some unique um wind directions based off of that you know even though your wind may be forecasted for coming out of the south if you're hunting in one of those second between those secondary points in one of those draws it's like it it goes up and then it breaks off uh and goes in a different direction like you would be going east and west um, I have noticed that in the past few years.
0: You know where I think that also would play a factor. I think one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is air pressure. And what I mean by air pressure is, it, it you know air has got to go somewhere. So I've talked to PK about this, uh, Doug White, who we've had on podcast a couple times. Um, actually, hold on, let me make sure this is Doug White. I think it? I think, it I, think I think it was him talking about like at no matter what there's. With falling thermals, let me talk about therm. What? What? You know where I'm going with this? Was it David Tom's? David Tom's. That was it. Yeah, that's what. That's what it was. But I talked to PK about, it and he thought same thing. But David. So David Tom's talked about this. Um. So, and he talked about air pressure. Right. Again, the pressure of the air that's getting forced on the landscape, and depending on the topography and everything, the air has to be released somewhere. Okay. So, like with falling thermals, there's a certain point in the falling thermals. You can't just have air pulling, pulling, pulling down to a certain spot. At some point, it's got to spill over. Okay, just kind of like with water. So you find that spill out point. Well, with this, like what you were talking about, Mike, where you have like a creek drainage, for this analogy, runs south to north, north to south, whatever. And you have these secondary ridge points. The ridges run along the creek on each side. And you have secondary ridge points that parallel or perpendicular come out to the creek. So it's a 90-degree point off the main ridge down to the creek. And you have drainages in between them. That air pressure, if as you got higher up to like maybe like a big, like thermal hub, like a big thermal hub higher up on the ridge, all that air rushing up, it's going to be forced out somewhere. It's going to hit a wall. It's got to go up and go out. Right. Well, it'd be different where if you were on a long Creek channel and that's air could still go past the secondary ridge points for a long ways before it hit that back wall to go up and out. So like, I don't know, maybe it's something that's kind of weird and interesting to talk about and like be finding somebody understands air pressure of like, if you're on, if you were on a Creek system or a big drainage system that came up to a big thermal hub, how that air, if it's coming up, blowing straight up that drainage and it hits that thermal hub, how it shoots straight up and out of it compared to, you know, a situation on just a long creek system and you're sitting off the side of it. Right. So, interesting.
1: I'm interested, too, in uh, what he was saying about where the fallout occurs. So, if that, that wind is basically ramping off one ridge, it, it comes down at some point. Um, like, your, your, your scent is going to come down at some point. And, Jacob, earlier this week, me and you were had a really interesting conversation about this. Uh when it comes to the bucks cruising on the upwind side of saddles. So that was something that neither of us really expected um, him to say. I mean, that's just not something you hear a whole lot of. But then, Jacob, you said uh, that, you know, when you think about it, he's really also cruising whatever ridge is upwind of him, especially on those higher wind days. If you have that, if you have two ridges, you know, I'm going use, <laughs> to use the east and west ridge <laughs> example. If you got two ridges uh, running east and west, that upwind, and you got a north wind, the upwind ridge, that, that wind basically ramping off that ridge, the buck on the, uh, the downwind ridge should be able to smell that ridge upwind of him. So even if he's upwind of the saddle on his ridge, he should be able to smell the saddle on the ridge upwind of him. Uh, so that might be some kind of explanation for that. But I, I found that super interesting uh, just because that's something that you – Pretty much never here. I mean, it's really hammered into your head. Hunt that leeward side, hunt that leeward side. and it's, uh, I always find it interesting when I find guys who are having consistent success doing something other than that. Because uh, a couple years ago, I shot a buck on the upwind side of a ridge, and uh, we are talking about it on Facebook on the Running Gun group, and a bunch of guys were saying, like, oh, it was a fluke. Uh, oh, it was probably a young deer, this and that uh mature bucks won't do that but then you find somebody like clifton who's killed a whole bunch of mature bucks doing that exact thing i i just i find that stuff really interesting
2: so basically we need to reach out to like josh driver and some of those people on the hunting beast because uh some of them had success on the windward side and they didn't really buy in uh to uh the whole leeward side as much um i really wish i could remember who who some of those people were because there were Two or three people that really just did not buy into the only the leeward, you know, side of the ridge for some of these bucks.
0: Just to kinda of go just kinda of hash this out again, you know, when people heard about the whole, you know, windward side, the the front side of the ridge, you know, as the wind was coming. And you know, probably a lot of people like didn't understand. The thing is if you thought if you think about this, and we talked about this on the episode a little bit, if you're hunting hill country, it's not like you're hunting the last ridge and then everything out in front of it's flat. Okay? Because if it was that situation, probably the the downwind side, uh, the leeward side of the ridge probably would be the spot to hunt. But if you're hunting in hill country, there's always a ridge in front of you. So, and especially if the ridges are fairly close, like a lot of places that we hunt, where the ridge might be 200 yards. Like from one top of the ridge to the other top of the ridge, it might be only 200 yards or less. Deer easily can smell that. If that fallout, especially in steep country, that fallout doesn't happen until like the bottom third or the bottom half of the other ridge across from you you know, then that's where the deer is going to be at. And that's kind of like what Clifton was talking about.
2: So I've never thought about it like this. Like I always thought it was for them to get out of the wind, but maybe they're using the wind, you know, kind of as an advantage versus just getting out of the wind if it's higher speed. Um,
0: Oh, oh, okay. That was another
2: thing that we used to talk about on the forums was um, deer uh, bedding elevation stuff changing um, due to wind speed and thermals because your thermals aren't as – active or predominant when you have higher wind speeds and so a lot of those were you know a lot of those deer were bedding in lower uh, places according to what a lot of people thought Um, but that's very interesting
1: hunting gear deals is dedicated to helping the hunting community find the best deals on hunting gear from across the web each day they scour the web for deals sales and coupon codes on hunting gear to help you save time and money on your next purchase
0: head on over to huntinggeardeals.com and join their daily deal email list each day you'll receive deals that are emailed to you uh, from across the country on the best sales and promos that are going on for that day for your favorite hunting equipment
1: if you're a gear fanatic like us then be sure to check out their extensive collection of unbiased and honest gear reviews submitted by hunters from across the country just like yourself
2: black friday and cyber monday is coming up so when you're out shopping for yourself or for christmas gifts make sure that you check out hunting gear deals for some great finds Hunting Gear Deals is your number one resource during Black Friday and Cyber Monday for hunting related deals across the web. During these special sales events, Hunting Gear Deals compiles a huge list of all the best hunting related deals in one place, saving you time and money.
1: Make sure to go click the link in the show notes to go visit huntinggeardeals.com and see all the great deals they have right now. Cruiser Saddles is the newest addition to companies supporting this podcast. Cruiser is the maker of saddles and saddle hunting gear. Uh, me and Jacob actually met Chad, the owner, at our Bosenburz event in March of 2020. We were demoing a lot of different saddles there from a lot of different companies, and he showed up with his products, which were brand new at the time, and everybody there was extremely impressed with them, including me and Jacob. We ended up getting some of the saddles for this past hunting season, and used them all year from basically we started hunting in August and hunted until February. No complaints, really liked them. The durability was there, the comfort was there, the wearability was there, you know, walking in and out to the stand. So we we're very impressed. You can go back to some of the the episodes from last year and actually hear us you know live through the season talking about these things we talked about them a lot in the podcast from last year season just really impressed and we think you would like them too so go to their website and check them out we ran the xc order ship the same day or next day unless otherwise indicated and you get free shipping on orders over 300 we really appreciate cruiser for supporting this show and you guys go show them some support as well this podcast is supported by marks outdoors If you're from around Birmingham, you know of a a staple in the hunting community here, and that would be Mark's Outdoors. They've been in business in the same location for over 40 years, family owned and operated, and they have a reputation for being one of the best bow shops in the Southeast. As we inch closer and closer to deer season, if you haven't already, it's time to dust off that bow and make sure that she's ready to roll for this hunting season. Go stop by Mark's Outdoors and check out their archery counter with Mark and Robbie, two guys I've known for years. Excellent bow techs. They've worked on my bow since I started bow hunting. They got all the knowledge and accessories that you need to get ready to rock for this bow season. While you're in there, also make sure you check out their gun counter they got a ton of nice rifles for everything from ar platforms to nice deer rifles and a bunch of nice shotguns as well they also have one of the best knife selections in alabama i mean really nice stuff all kinds of custom knives in there and their ammo selection is just unbeatable as well we're thrilled to have marks outdoors on board and we thank
0: them for supporting the podcast now we're going to ask you guys to go support them and so that see mike this is where you're going to come into this so that's where clifton really kind of you know talked about and kind of opened this up is i thought the same thing you know deer kind of getting low and high winds and all kind of stuff but what he was talking about was like because that fallout with high winds is so much lower on the ridge that's one reason why he sees them lower it's not because they're trying to get out of the wind it's that they can smell everything up on that top of that ridge now i mean almost in the bottom down. like yeah. like he's talked about the bottom. The bottom fourth of the ridge is where they'll be at if it's a 20-mile-an-hour wind or higher. Right. Um, And it's because they can smell everything up above them. Same thing, if the ridges are real close together and it's high winds, they might be on the, you know, like Andrew said, two ridges, winds coming from the north. They might be on that southern ridge on the face of it, on the northern side of the southern ridge, but smelling everything on the ridge above them you know, uh, to the north. It's just kind of interesting, again, how they could travel and do that, uh, potentially, again, with this kind of theory and how Clifton's been paying attention with this and so, using particle guns. So how
2: does he set up on those days? Does he set up even lower, or does he set up in that dead zone?
0: No, he sets up kind of in that – in and around that dead zone. That's one thing we can – So can, is
2: he shooting with a rifle or is bow?
0: Mm-hmm. All bow. And also, so, he's a big caller, so – we never get into, we didn't get into that uh, actually in the episode like his call he's very aggressive calling technique compared to like Richard foughtton him and Richard are like best friends but like he it takes a totally different approach to it. like yeah. his goals like hey I'm gonna so does
2: this. his elevation change like as far as like how high he's getting up in a tree um does that ever change I'm just curious how mm-hmm. how it all yeah. plays in because you think <laughs> the higher you are the the further your sense gonna travel to travel down so I didn't know if he was in that dead zone like if he thought it was beep you know, more beneficial to hunt a little bit lower.
0: Yeah, I, no, I think it is. I think it's something like a look. He, he doesn't. He, he talked about he didn't like to be on the edge of that dead zone. Yeah, he wanted to be just kind of you know down from it, um, so you get a little more consistent wind down from the dead zone. Uh, if I heard well, him correctly, yeah. See,
2: and that's what I was asking yeah. about yeah. Um, because it would make more sense because your scent wraps and goes back up the hill. So if you're on the bottom side of it that rap is occurring up in front of you, in front of you. Yeah. yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, but again, he's a big caller. Also, he's a scent guy, you know, for scent control and all that kind of stuff. Um, and absolutely believes in the system and dude, I mean, he's killed 13 Pope and young bucks in the last six years on public land. So pretty good. Pretty, solid.
2: I did hear him talking about that camo dust. Oh yeah. There's a lot of people, you know, using that camo dust. I got something right here. I used it I used it out there, yeah. It works. Yep. Like it it takes, you know, some of that sin away. It's like that moisture too. Man. I got I got so stanky in in Missouri. Like uh we didn't run into a, like a washer until like day 10 or 12. So you you think I only had like 3 pairs of wool boxers.
0: Oh man. So Po- your poor balls, bro, just all shrivel up and die <laughs> from that stank. <laughs> yeah,
2: I probably could have put some whitetails down. It, it, it was they probably were... like was probably thinking in their in their little brains like, "Dang, who, who's this stud that just come in here to?" Uh,
0: <laughs> I guess what I want to say, but I cannot say it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I told you when we were driving up, remember? But, like, you couldn't shower for so long. Anyways, yeah, we won't, I won't talk about it. It's funny, though. Um, but we'll, we'll get to the, We're going to the Missouri hunt uh, next week's outro. Um, but the whole – the 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 windward side of the ridge is just something interesting. Because, again, I think one thing that Clifton's doing is, again, looking big picture. Everybody looks – most people, they look at their spot, and they might look within a 100 yards or so of that spot. Like, okay, why am I hunting here, Wind conditions, all that kind of stuff. But they're not looking – you know, four or 500 yards from that spot. Like, what's the wind going to be doing as it comes over these other ridges? Why could a buck be traveling on this ridge, scent-checking the ridge across from him, and and, and so on? Or, like, the uh, the uh, the saddle across from him. Uh, you know, those kind of things I find very, very interesting. And, dude, again, he's had a ton of success.
2: So, was he mentioning, like, how far apart these ridges are from each other?
0: No. Because uh, that would be something. Well, one thing I brought to him is, like, if, you know – as you talking about windward side you know, he's catching them all the times windward side that bottom you know sounds like that bottom quarter uh like a hot windward uh, or leeward windward windward side
2: so he's always hunting windward he, side
0: he likes to hunt windward side more times than than downwind he he does both but he prefers upwind side of a ridge so
2: so then okay so everything i've been thinking about was for a leeward uh, so he's talking about dead zone on the windward side
1: no, no, he's talking about dead zone on the leeward side, but he's hunting right. the windward side in spite of that. So he's blowing out the saddle downwind of him on the ridge he is on, anticipating a buck cruising the upwind side of that ridge, and he might go and cut through that saddle, or he might stay on the upwind side of that ridge that he okay, is
2: on. Okay, so there. this is just for saddle? On, yeah, on he, he really side.
1: focused on the saddle thing. He uh, that that is definitely his his main travel corridor. He really likes saddles.
2: Okay. So how do, how does that wind flow through a saddle? Like if um, if you've got that break, you know, in the ridge, how does that wind flow through that saddle? Does it does it eddy to each side once it goes through that saddle? Does instead of going, instead of thinking about it's going over the top and swirling back up to the top, does it go through it and and go left and right?
0: He he, he talked about that actually on uh, end of ridges, like ridge points, uh, and how that he he did talk about that like how uh, and kind of in with the salinity, but at one point in the episode he talks about. If you're hunting like the edge of a ridge, like a point of a ridge or something like that, and like, how that wind, you know, if it hits at a 90 degree angle, it's gonna like wrap around. Some, that air is gonna slow down over the top. It's gonna speed up around the side. It's gonna like mm. swirl right there. Um, and how you know Buck can use that, but also it's challenging to hunt those spots. Um, so again, hey, it's it's, it's it's worth having them on another time. You know, we we left some, we left some things hanging out there for a, a part two episode potentially. Yeah, in the, in yeah the you know future.
1: you know what we should do. We need what? to find we need to find someone around here. With, like, a little dozer or something. And we ought to make some, like, big old dirt berms and kind of, like, fashion them, like, put a saddle in one of them and go out there with some, uh, some, like, talcum powder or something like that and a leaf blower and make a video out of it and, and kind of see, see, like, do our own tests and kind of see what it does.
2: Yeah. We could take, like, we could do, like, a miniature scale. No, do a smoke bomb. We could do, like, a miniature, uh, scale of this and take, like, a blow dryer and hold it, like, You know, a couple of feet away, and put it on low, and then put it on high, and just see how it, see how it does. This would be really cool to do in the off season. Yeah, like it's not something we need to be doing right now, (laughs) especially with a rut coming up. (laughs) Yeah, everybody else is already uh, their ruts. You know, pretty much already hit, but we're about to ramp up for real. Like the first one is probably going on right now. Oh yeah, this next week.
0: Oh yeah. Yep. Old, just, uh, just get old, started.
2: Yep. Which I'm heading up to uh, to meet up with Mr. Perry. So.
0: Oh, old BW. Heck Plus, yeah. BW. Yeah. yeah. So, old BW. Um, B-dubs.
1: Did, did y'all have anything else with uh, Clifton's episode? Because I, I got a curveball I'm going to throw at yep, y'all here yep. in a second. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. I've got one. Hold on. Hold on a second, man. He, Andrew's trying to get out of this conversation real quick. Real quick. Um, Andrew's actually recording off-site right now. He's He's down at the beach just having a grand old time. Uh, Good know, old work, work conference. conference. <laughs> they, they, they even feeding them eating meat, bro. They're trying to starve them out down there. <laughs> they, these <laughs> people, I veggies. don't know if some dang vegetarian <laughs> runs this, but they have given
1: me no meat for breakfast or dinner at this conference, which I'm very upset about. And anyways. <laughs>
2: Hey, I'm, gonna is get there off, an Arby's? I'm gonna get off is this
1: subject before I before I get upset, but I think I might go to Waffle House <laughs> in the morning before the conference <laughs> get up, resumes. Get up, get up. So I, so I hey, get an all-star yep. meal and give me some on bacon. <laughs> yeah and something. Hey, you know. get
2: you some uh hash browns with feet seven sauce on there. They, hey, uh you need to find you an Arby's because I hear they have the meat.
1: They they do. They they have the meats for sure. <laughs> I I should have brought some deer meat down here for him. That's what Jacob said earlier. I should have brought some deer meat. Maybe they you know, just like couldn't afford it. I don't know what's going on, but there's no meat.
2: <laughs> they're cleansing you right now, like you're gonna have meat sweats and everything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, dude. I'm like, man, I'm gonna like lose some weight down here or something. Like, they're not eating
0: anything. What's coming on? <laughs> hey, they they, hey, they know you've been eating some little debbies the last three, four weeks. they're so like, hey, we got we got to lean them out now. No, oh, dude, I'm uh, fixing to
1: go to Walmart get me some of them little Debbie Christmas trees. We'll be ready to hey Do that
2: and get you some of those zebra cake rolls. Ooh, Some of those zebra cake rolls. Oh, my God. The rolls are way better. They're so much better than the cake. Oh,
0: my God. Yeah, oh, man. Mike got me on those, bro. (laughs) Uh, No, no, so the topic I want to talk about is hunting blind. So, Mike, fill you in on this. Clifton is a huge proponent of hunting blind. He does not scout. He goes 100% off topo maps and aerial maps and then goes in in the dark, morning hunts, sets up, kills deer. That's like the way he does it, okay? Which I love because I was like, as I said in the episode, that's a throwback to me, like in like get out of high school, college. I didn't really know what I was doing scouting wise. So I just like would go out there and hunt and just go sit in a spot, you know, in the dark, you know, that looked good on the map, transition edges and find deer, shoot deer, and it was awesome. Well, yeah. another um, thing
1: too, but an- another piece of that is he's also a big proponent of hunting your way into an area so i think another thing he was saying is that a lot of times he'll go in and he'll sit blind on that spot and he might have luck on it but if he doesn't then he'll get down and he'll he'll look at the sign on the ground that fresh sign there and then make a play off of that uh so his his scouting is like very much uh just in the situation in the moment he's kind of going through and he's setting up on what is on the ground right there at that moment. He's not going in ahead of time and, and re-scouting some stuff or anything like that.
2: Right. Uh, did he say what time he goes in? Dark. Yeah.
0: Like pitch – like headlamp, pitch black. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's what I'm, what I'm, what I'm getting at. Um, yeah. I, Because I do that a lot. I do – I go in blind a lot. Um, but if I do go in blind, like I want to be in there like two hours. <laughs> you know, I want to be – You know, it's tough going into an area you don't know, making all kinds of racket, you know, and doing that.
0: 40 minutes before daylight. Yeah,
2: an hour to to 30 minutes before daylight because you're basically blowing the whole freaking area out when you're going in at that time. I feel like you need to let that area cool down a little bit. So I think the earlier you go in and do that, especially if you don't know where you're going, Mm -hmm. um, it's very difficult to... To know where you're going like because nine times out of ten when I go in, I'm sitting there in the same spot for five minutes looking around with my headlamp, trying to figure out what the area actually looks like. And it always looks ten times thicker in the dark. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with your headlamp on. Like I can't tell you how many times like I've stomped out or, or cleared a shooting lane and it looks like I've got, you know, 100 different things between me and 20 yards away and then it breaks daylight and it's like what in the world like i'm out here in a wide open like it it looks ridiculous so that's that's good i like i like that i think that's very important and something you shouldn't overlook is when you're going in blind make sure you get there plenty of time before daylight
0: super early two hours plus hey you want to talk Uh, about a
1: throwback too I mean, a big proponent of that was Glenn Solomon, episode 116. I mean, the, the classic, probably like the most classic Southern Outdoorsman episode. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it, episode 116. Um, he was talking notes. about, yeah, I mean, he was talking about going in, and I remember him saying it, like, deer do not spook earlier. Right. You know, the earlier you go, they just don't spook like they do if you go in. Yep. and. and if you go in right before daylight and we've seen that time and time again i mean jacob always think about that time we were going way in the swamp and we're walking in and it's like three o'clock in the morning and we're like in the middle of the woods walking and we're walking past all kinds of deer and it's like you couldn't even scare them off i mean they we're walking i mean very close to them and they're just kind of sitting there staring at us
0: Hey, right. j- just remember that hunt by the way. We walked past deer to go find deer and we never found deer. Just remember that. <laughs> yep. Yep.
1: Hey, but we learned. We learned.
2: Well, I'll tell you this. Uh I think a lot of times they start out closer to the roads and closer to people and then they they work away from that in the morning. So I think even even if you are, you know, close to a road and you're seeing deer, like a lot of times they start out close and then they push in a little bit further and, and vice versa in the evening.
0: Yeah, we weren't close to the road by no means. Yeah, I know y'all are way we, y'all are way deep. We, we, y'all are
2: probably on the other side, like catching them going to private. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, actually, yeah. yeah,
0: that's exactly what was happening. Yeah, um, but yeah, that's that's a good point. I, you know, Glenn still scouted. He kind of like knew his areas and kind of knew how he's going to go in on Bucks. But yeah, he, he was huge going in super, super, super early, uh, which I do too. I hate going in, dude. If I only have like an hour, yeah, like before daylight, just I, that, wait till I feel so stressed. No, no. I mean, I'll still do it, but you- I don't feel as comfortable as I'm getting in. If I can get into the stand and I'm in the stand, 45 minutes to an hour before gray light, I'm so happy. Yeah, um, I think
2: if you, if you can't make it in you know, with plenty of time left, I think you're just as good waiting until about 30 minutes after daylight and then to go in because, um, it's just natural. It, like you don't see, you know, a whole lot of deer moving. Um, I mean, you'll, you'll see the bucks, you know, especially some mature bucks, they'll be moving at gray light and that's a decent time, but somewhere around that time that uh, maybe like within 30 minutes after you know you're 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 getting enough enough to where you can see Mm -hmm. that's like a natural move time Mm -hmm. like 30 minutes before daylight I don't feel like that's a natural move time for deer like I feel like they're bedded up and they're waiting for that change to happen and then they will move around a little bit
0: i say yes except for that they're in a rut I've seen a lot of bucks during that I mean 30 minutes before daylight I mean it's dark but it's like hey 30 minutes before gray light I hear All right. Right. All right. But, but he's coming through because does had come through two hours yeah, previously. That well, actually and happened in Missouri. Well, well, yeah. well hold it R- for next week, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're holding for next week. Yeah. Next week's outro is going to be banging, dude. It's going yeah. to be a long one. It's going to be good. It's going to be juicy. Um, um, But so I see that happening so, the rut a lot.
2: So one thing I want to um say is I had an opinion here a few years ago, and I think we're always evolving as a hunter, Um, where I had an opinion where your scent would pull up a lot – uh, in these low line areas, the earlier you, you know, you got in, um, that has since changed for me because I feel like, um, if you can get in early and let things kind of settle down a little bit, um, it, it doesn't matter nearly as much, uh, with that scent. Um, in theory, yes, you're, you have more scent that's there, but I don't think it bothers the deer near as much as I thought you know, it would. There's been a lot of scenarios here within the past probably two years, where I've you know had deer walk right by or come in. You know,
0: Through a spot you thought it was pulling it
2: right, and it doesn't seem to matter as much.
0: I'll say this: we're gonna. I'm working on getting somebody on the podcast who's a scent expert, like at, he like an expert when it comes to scent and working with dogs and stuff. He's got he's got his own thoughts on that, which is pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, I would like to know what it is that triggers these deer, like they can smell this stuff. Um, I just wonder what it is that triggers the, I guess the fright or the scared aspect with these deer. Sm- is there anything like that? that yeah. he goes over, S-
0: uh, smelling someone who hasn't bathed in 12 days. I'm sure them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm sure too.
0: So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's all learned behavior. Cause I mean, you go someplace like a, like a state park that doesn't have hunting pressure. Um, and the deer, you know, could be downwind of you. And if they're used to seeing people, whatever, it's just not that big of a deal. But then, in the same situation, though, you get off some place where they're not used to seeing people or smelling people, and they smell you. They still act like deer. So, you know, I think it's all based off situation. Um, but I'll say this. Back to hunting blind. I, t- I said this on the podcast, and I'll say it again. The two biggest bucks I've ever ran into, which were both in the great state of Tennessee, uh, while hunting. around two hunts, two separate hunts, going in blind one going over a mile and a half to the spot, the other one going close to a mile to the spot, uh, hunting, you know, a, a drainage and, but had two biggest bucks i ever seen come by me within bow range and just, you know, screw up on the opportunity. We also talked about this deer also with uh, Bobby Worthington uh, on the last episode we just did with him. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where you like, hey, I personally love to do it. But the thing is, if you're really new at like going out and hunting, like this style of hunting, like mobile hunting, like you're like, we're not talking about like going in blind hunting, a food plot, green field, anything like that. I'm talking about like going out in the woods and like, trying to find the habitat edges based off aerial maps and terrain features. Going to hunt blind, especially during the rut, because like also Clifton talks about this. His style does not work during the early season. He he admitted it on the podcast. He's like, I don't have success a lot of times early season because hunting blind doesn't work. You know, in his opinion. Um, but come the rut, when he's hunting travel corridors, he's like, it's money. And he's like, his thought is. He's going in. It's the first time he's ever been in there, Mm -hmm. and that's when he's killing the deer. Well, that's what I was going to say.
2: Yeah, I mean, it just – I've heard heard a lot of people talk here lately about going into an area and either setting up a camera or going in to look at an area and then going back the following day to hunt it. And I don't know. I have mixed emotions on that. Like, I feel like, yeah – you could learn more about that area if you went in and looked at it beforehand, but I think it's probably more beneficial like he's talking about. Like you go in, you don't necessarily know if you're setting up on the exact you know, spot, but you stand a lot better chance, I feel like, going in and hunting the first time mm-hmm. and then getting down and scouting and adjusting on the fly like he's talking about yeah. versus going in, scoping things out, and then going back in to hunt it.
0: Oh yeah, I'm, No, I'm right there with you. I, I agree. I mean, that's one thing I was telling, like, I love the whole hunting blind because you can go into a spot, especially if it's during the talking the rut here, okay? You know, bucks are really cruising, you know, bumping does, and you kind of know where, like, maybe some doe bedding is and try to find the travel quarters in between those areas. I mean, some of my best hunts, period, on public land have been in those kind of situations. It's an area, you know, it could be high pressure. Going in first time is in the best time, and that's what Glenn Sullivan talked about. You know, like Glenn wasn't the kind of guy running trail cameras and he wasn't scouting it one week and coming back in three days later. He was like, I'm not hunting this spot until I'm hunting this spot next year. And it's like, it's like one of those things like you learn an area and once you learn an area, you learn how they travel through it. That's another thing Clifton talked about is taking notes of like how you're seeing the deer travel and learning on that and then putting that into your Onyx or whatever system you're using so that you can, can like remap this out on other areas like, hey, normally in this situation, this kind of ridge, this kind of elevation type, this kind of saddle, they're traveling – however you know along it so you can kind of figure out how you need to set up and he's a huge proponent of that having like a journal building that out
2: yeah and if you if you see a buck if you're hunting the rut and if you see a hot doe come through and you see a young buck behind her and they're 50 yards away from you and you're bow hunting get down right the end and go set up 30 yards closer and set up right on that trail because you don't know what else, what other buck could come through that area on that same trail picking up that same scent. And, I mean, if you sit back, you might see, you know, five different bucks come through. There, they may not be right there on that doe right then,
0: but. It could be an hour, <laughs> two hours later. Yeah. That, dude, that's such a good
1: point. Just do that. Growing up, man, I can't tell you how many bucks in the clubs that we grew up, like hunting with Mr. Benny, a lot of those bucks on his wall that, that, you know, me and Jake were down there talking to him about these bucks. A lot of those bucks, man, he would kill him, and he'd be like, yeah, he was about 45 minutes behind a doe. I mean, it was pretty rare that it was that, that mature buck was right on that doe's butt, you know, trailing her through the woods. A lot of times she would be coming through, and he'd see a doe, and she'd be flicking her tail, and she'd be looking behind her, and she'd be acting kind of weird. And then, you know, 30, 45 minutes, an hour and a half later, here comes a buck, literally just, trailing her through the woods and and those are the ones that he ends up killing right Yep.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really good point um I, Again, i just the whole hunting blind is something I, i'll always do you know i do it all the time like buck i killed last year in alabama hunted blind first time i ever been in that spot never scouted that previously now that was a gun. it was a firearm hunt that's another thing i saw i talked about in the episode it's like hey if you're not just a bow hunter and you have opportunities, especially in some of our you know southern listeners that have a fairly decent gun season, like it's more than just a week or two long, you can hunt blind a lot of times in these areas where not necessarily you're trying to step in a spot where you can visually see a long ways, but hey, you're going to go into a spot and if you can reach out 75, 80 yards, especially on the edge of a thicket or some kind of travel corridor, that's fantastic. And dude, you could do really, really good during firearm season um, you know, with it. Same thing with a muzzleloader. You know, with a bow, you got to be a little bit more strategic, but then that's also how Clifton again overlays the calling aspect with that. So that's what he talks about a lot in the episode. He's like, Listen, I don't have to be right on the trail that Buck's coming down. If I see him, I'm calling to him and I'm going to call him in. That's his thing.
2: I got a lot to say about this on next week's podcast. Oh, you gotta hold, <laughs> He's holding on to it. Oh, shoot. That's some really good stuff. And, um, let's just say that, uh, the bucks in Missouri have a lot deeper grunt than the bucks in Alabama.
0: <laughs> Our little man deer and they're up there like freaking. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get it. To, we'll yeah, get, it to, we'll it get, it get to it next. But week. um. But anyways. But that's something Clifton talked about in the episode. He's like, I don't have to be exactly where, where I'm on them. As long as I can, I can lay eyes on them, I can call them in.
2: Does he snort wheeze?
0: He uh, run. oh my gosh, like what?
2: the snort wheeze works up like there? really good up there. Yes. Yes, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Snortweezer. I didn't, it. I didn't know if he snortweez or not, but I, he, he didn't I can it. promise you the work works in Missouri. in Missouri. I don't know if it works in Alabama. <laughs> you probably just scare everything off in the woods because everything's timid down what, here. But
0: what, well, I'll say this: we had a listener success story coming. I am going to plug him real quick. Can't remember our old boy's name. I think it's. Oh, I don't want to miss say his name, but he sent us an email today, and he just killed his first deer ever. His first year ever bow hunting. He's like twenty eight years old. First year ever bow hunting, hunt public land, using a lot of tips from the t- podcast, like learning a lot from the podcast, and he just shot a absolute giant on public land. Uh, and it, he actually got in within ten yards. He, it was off the ground when he killed it, and uh, in a little little thicket, cane thicket, and uh, he grunted at it, and it snort wheezed at him and put his head down and started sidestepping. And he shot it.
2: That's crazy. Yeah. Like, it, he just needs like, to go and, ahead and retire because he's done, seen, I, and done more than most of the hunters and ever like, will.
0: And it, the ta- he said the taxidermist uh, gross scored it. I'm going to try to get him with Steve Lucas uh, from Buckmasters to try to get him an official score. But the taxidermist scored like 180, 180-something 180 inches. I mean, yeah. It, huge, huge deer. Um, And that was that was a bow kill. But, again, you know, hey, that deer snort wheezed at him when he grunted at it. Because yeah. in this bubble, and there's a hot doe around, actually, in the spot where, right. he, where he shot it at. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's all based off of the situation. You know, I I snort wheeze at deer just to see how they react. Like a two-and-a-half-year-old, he didn't want nothing to do with it, <laughs> which is kind of what I imagined. But right. But, like, you know, kind of is what it is. But, again, back to the whole hunting blind thing, I personally, I love it. It's, it. I hold it dear to my heart. You know, I think there's a big proponent of, you know, scouting pre- scouting in-season scouting and then finding an area and then moving in on it. But also I feel like again, like what you're talking about, Mike, go into an area blind on a morning hunt, hunt till nine, ten o'clock, unless like you for sure pretty confident in it. And then get down, scout your way around, and then scout your way into an afternoon spot to set up on. Yeah. Or midday spot.
2: And uh it's one thing that I remember us covering like in some of the earlier podcasts that I was on. Um I really pay attention to a lot of the birds cutting up. Um, and if if they're cutting up a uh, hundred or two hundred yards away from where i'm set up that morning I'll, I'll go to that area um after the hunt's over with and find out what it is about that area because a lot of times those deer are using that particular area for some reason and i was just out of range but just remember that just have that in the back of your head so you, know, what
0: do you what do you mean by it? because there's a lot of new listeners that probably have no idea what you're talking about birds cutting up what do you mean by that and yeah what does that tell you
2: yeah if it's eight o'clock in the morning and it's it's, it's you know it it's quiet And all of the birds start cutting up and and chattering um, or, you know, squirrels even. Um, A lot of times that's deer moving through the woods. Um, They could be chattering at multiple different things. And there's a lot of different chattering going on. Like if you have a, if it's like closer to 10 o'clock in the morning, it could be a hawk. Um, And you can listen for the hawks and, and they have a pretty distinct sound. Um, you could Google that if you don't know what a hawk sounds like. When they get, when those thermals kick in, those hawks get out and they'll be flying around, and um, and you'll hear a bunch of squirrels, you know, really cutting up as soon as a hawk comes through. Um, but if it's, you know, in a typical move time, um, you'll hear those uh, birds start cutting up. And if you just go check out that area after your hunt's over with. Um, a lot of times you'll find some sign, you know, whether it be rubs or whether it be, you know, some really good trail coming through a thicket that you didn't know was there or some kind of terrain feature that, you know, makes it to where they can get out of the way a little bit um, and have some kind of advantage. Um, those are some things just to keep in mind in the back of your head.
0: Talk about Wyoming because Wyoming, you keyed in on a spot where they were coming through like a certain vegetation type and you kept hearing the birds cut up, you kind of moved in and got in on the deer, so. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, just... Kind of give an example that
2: in the same thing in Missouri, the Blue Jays in Missouri. Um, so the Blue Jays, they'll they'll holler at a lot of different things, but I will say that when you had a, a buck coming through, those Blue Jays would follow that that buck all all through the freaking woods. Really? Yes, it was ridiculous. Um,
0: Say like me to the parking lot When I'm at my office dude I go outside And they'll just be Cutting up at When I'm at my truck And I'm like You son I'm like Okay listen I'm here Like okay Yeah like, And there's Being loud as hell And then I go back inside They'll shut up And I come back outside And they're just like mm-hmm. yeah. Right yeah anyway. So
2: yeah They would follow them Like hundreds Hundreds of yards Like just Really just Going to town on them um, And I mean But like I said Blue jays You can't count on them You know 100% of the time um, But Birds in general you know they're going to be cutting up um, for so some it, reason, so and usually walking it's through. usually it's something walking through pretty slow.
0: Yep. Hey, okay, Andrew, what's your curveball? Not to get us too sidetracked.
1: All right. So before we get into like reviews and, and all that good stuff, I, I really wanted to ask Mike about this, and a listener actually wrote in and said it would Uh-oh. be a good idea to do like a weekly thing with Mike on Moon Phase, some like Mike's prediction on Moon Phase for that week, which I think is an excellent idea. Um. So I got I got two cell cameras out right now where we hunt um, and that they're on travel corridors. So one of them is uh, on a, on a travel corridor within a bedding area, like definite for sure bedding area, definite bedding. The other one is on a Creek crossing coming out of a bluff gap. So there's a, there's a cutover up on the Hill. There's a, a steep, steep Hill on the backside of it. Nice bluff gap deer coming down and crossing the Creek right there. So ba- basically two travel corridors, um, the kind of spots where you're gonna have a deer come in front of your camera once a day if you're lucky maybe once every two or three days in most cases because uh, it's not like a destination spot it's just it's just a travel corridor and there's a lot of travel corridors so they don't necessarily use the same travel corridors every single day but um, so in those spots last night they just lit up. There was deer on both cameras, big doe groups, no bucks came through, but both cameras had multiple does come past them at multiple times last night. The one on the bluff gap, uh, kind of, it's kind of in more open woods. It's between two thickets. That one had a whole bunch, like a parade of freaking does come through at like 11 p.m. last night, between 11 p.m. and midnight. The one yeah, in the bedding area had a bunch of deer come by, a bunch of does, again, just a carnival of does coming through there at like 5:30 a.m so 30 minutes to an 30 to 45 minutes before gray light uh definite like huge spike in movement uh from what what they have been and, and one of them's been there since this past saturday and then one of them has been there uh maybe two weeks now i guess um and then just boom so, sudden flurry of activity and that and that activity was on uh monday which was i guess november 14th i guess um So, Mike, uh, do you have any? Have you been looking at the moon? Do you have any, uh, like, opinion on what that might be? And I'll also add it was, it was kind of cold, no major cold front, but there was wind. There was like 10 mile per hour plus wind through the night last night.
2: Yeah. Um, So we've, we've kind of had the same thing going on behind my house. The dogs just cutting up last night, like, um, maybe like around 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Um, I think it, When you start getting around your full moon and your new moon, um, your, your typical times, um, seeing these deer, you know, up on their feet, a lot of times it is going to be closer to around midnight, um, between like 10 o'clock and two o'clock, just, just like it would be, um, during the daytime. Um, the closer you get to each one of those, um, I noticed like when we were, we were in Missouri, um the the deer we noticed a whole flurry of activity um when we first got up there and i'll tell you this too rain bill thompson mentioned to us that rain if you're a southerner and you and you hunt in the south that rain is like one of those things like you want to be hunting in and around that rain and i can say for a fact that up there in Missouri, even uh, that rain was like a trigger for the deer, and there were deer everywhere. And I had a theory, um, which I guess we could talk about it again in the next episode because, mm-hmm. well, me and Clay have different opinions on a lot of things. Like if I say um, the sky is blue, he's gonna say it was black. But um, man, what
0: you what you do, Clay, dirty like that, bro? I ain't
2: doing Clay dirty. Man, man you, um,
0: you said you the sky was black. He said the sky's blue.
2: Probably so. <laughs> either either way. I've already told Clay this, yeah. uh so Clay already knows. Um <laughs> <laughs> Clay's listening right now, yeah. like yes, I suffer. <laughs> uh we'll get to talk about it in the next episode. Yeah. Um but anyways, um I gotta think a a lot of this um a lot of this moisture, I think it probably has these deer feeding on the grasses on the edge of the road. Um I've always noticed which I've told you, Andrew, um that a lot of times after the after the rain, like I see them feeding on grasses, um, but that may be you know another thing too is why we were seeing so many on the edges of the roads because of the grasses on the edge of the roads. And when we were going through the park, when we were driving down the road, all of these does were on the edge of the road, and all of those bucks were right there with them. Um, once that rain went away, uh, and we got on the outside of that, everything tapered off. All of our sightings tapered off, and everything. But I also kind of started looking at the moon, and our our times were getting closer and closer to that midday. Uh, And when that shift occurred, I noticed, like, these deer would – I would be set up in my spot an hour before daylight, and these deer would come through 15 to 30 minutes before shooting light. And I could hear them go right past me, grunting, chasing the does through, right into the bedding thicket, right where I jumped the does the day before. And so it's like – I hunted all around that thicket throughout the day and I never uh saw them moving uh, moving about during the day. This was a new moon. Um and Bill Vell, he said that a lot of times when you're um when you're hunting around the full moon, you'll see that movement, but uh he said that that's feeding during the day. Um midday, but it's going to be closer to like your bedding locations. I don't know about the the new moon though. Um, whether or not, I assume that's going to be possibly in, you know, middle of the day too. Talking too much. Sorry, I got long winded. Hit a mark. So anyways, um, so right now we're at the full moon. So I would expect like this, you know, movement to be, um, late at night and then middle of the day, same thing with the new moon. I'll tell you this, another thing. Um, I think you have better movement on the last quarter, uh, than you do on probably any other phase. And especially like when you get those, uh, days where you have your feeding times at like four and five and six, um, you, you almost get double movement. You get, you get movement in the morning when they're coming back to bed, They've been up feeding 4, 5, 6 a.m. They're coming back to back to bed late. And then in the afternoon, you also get that 4, 5, and 6. They're getting up early from bed, and they're going to feed. So, it's like you get double the movement at their natural feeding times. And I think that that's probably the best time to be in the woods mm. outside of the rut.
0: We- <laughs> so, the answer Andrew's question, talking about from Monday so you know, yesterday, that flurry of activity – you know, any, anything that you think could have caused that, you know, within the last day or so?
2: Yeah, I think the flurry of activity is probably due to the moon, but I don't think it's going to be beneficial to you um, because all of that's nighttime movement. So I think you're going to have to be back, back in that bedding area, and you really need to be in that bedding area well before daylight because those deer are probably going to come through before daylight.
1: Yep. Yeah, that was the thing, too. Looking at those pictures, I mean, the deer were in the bedding area hanging out uh, at 5.30 a.m., and I think sunrise yep. is at, like, or somewhere around 6.30 or around, uh, I don't know, maybe 6.15-ish right now. Uh, so, right. I mean, they were they were in there before legal light for sure. Right, um, and that's
2: what I experienced in Missouri. Like, they were, every single morning that I was in and around that thicket, they were in there, you know, well before – I was able to uh, shoot. Um, I actually had them almost run over me. I actually had to turn my headlamp on to make sure that it was deer running at me and not like some coyotes or something like that. Like, cause I'm on the ground in a thicket. You know, there's no trees I can climb, um, and so they're they're running around, and I'm, it sounded like deer to me. But you know, I'm set up where the trail splits. And about 20 yards from where the split is, they can either come down my trail that I'm set up on or they can branch off. And I had a doe at like, I don't know, she's probably like 10 or 12 yards. And the buck was right behind her at like probably 15, to 20 yards. But this is, like I said, this is, you know, 15 to 30 minutes before gray light. So like, but yeah, when I turn that headlamp on, They like froze and then I turned it off and it was it was all over after that. She like blew and she luckily she only blew once and then they just stood around like waiting for like probably ten or fifteen minutes and then went off. But I had three bucks come through after daylight, so
0: Dang. So many questions for next week's episode. So many questions. Yeah. All right, awesome. Andrew, all right, what else you got?
1: Uh Last thing I got here uh is Michael. Uh you said you were planning on hunting the next couple of days. Uh what what's your what's your strategy? What are what you going into?
2: Uh a lot of midday hunts. Yep. A lot of midday hunts uh in in get... some really thick areas. Ooh, um, cuz I think that's going to be my best bet. Um I don't think the deer are going to be going far with uh with the moon that we have, the overhead underfoot is going to be close to around 11 or 12 probably. Um, I just don't think it's going to be um, beneficial to be in any other areas besides those areas.
0: So, are you going to go in like mid morning or what?
2: No, I'm going to get in well before daylight, and I'm going to I'm I'm, I'm going to hunt all day. Hunts. Yeah,
0: listen, Mike's a tough um, out, son.
2: So, I th- I think uh, another thing too is, um, especially when you get these overhead. Uh, Underfoot times, if you can make some uh, make some racket, and I'm not talking about tinging metal together, but I'm talking about like um, like one day I got down at 11 o'clock, uh, and this was lined up with the the new moon phase up there. Um, I got down and was uh, stepping on a whole bunch of limbs. I was in a really thick thicket, um, kind of similar to what uh, Glenn Solomon you know talked about. Um, it, it looked like where they had burned years ago in a select cut uh hardwood you know area and it had all these little sprouts um coming up and they were probably about head height and it was for hundreds of yards but you could climb up and see down into it um and I saw four bucks in one doe that morning and at 11 o'clock when I was uh when I was hunting up there like all of the younger bucks came through early but 11 o'clock I was getting down I'm supposed to go meet up with Clay, and um, I didn't have phone service. You know, I, I'm sure that doesn't surprise anybody. But um, anyways, so I'm getting down, and I'm making a whole bunch of rackets. So I'm using the one stick, which um, which I really enjoyed one sticking. Mm. Really enjoyed one sticking. Really great. Um, but anyways, I'm I rappel down. You know, I'm I'm sitting there. I've got the ropes. I'm getting them down. They're making a whole bunch of, you know, when they're falling. Um, gathering, gathering everything up, breaking little, you know, twigs and limbs and anything that's on the ground. It's just snapping and breaking, um, had that buck come in, that nice buck that I got the video of. He was, he was at 10 yards, you know, it's thick. He was at, he was at 10 yards, never even knew I was there. As soon as I saw him, I saw him come off the hill and hit this little drain right next to me. And I'm like standing there. I, I got an arrow knocked and everything. And I was like. Oh, man, I was like, should I shoot him or not? And I was like, God, I was like, I don't know. Like, after seeing the ones that I saw on day two, I was like, no, I'm going to let him walk. And so, by the time I, like, got my camera out and set the bow down and everything else, he was about 30 yards away, um, and I started filming him. But I probably should have shot him. No one want to know now because it, it basically we'll – la- we'll, yeah, yeah, we'll, ne- we'll talk about yeah, Nick. Ne- we'll talk about, yeah, ne- about next Yeah, so – but that's the that's the plan i'm gonna get into a thicket um if I don't see anything uh what i'm gonna what i'm gonna do is start making some noise um you know just that natural you know leaves rustling uh
0: how are you gonna do that from the tree like how are you gonna make those noises from the tree
2: well I mean you can get creative that's
0: what I'm asking like for the listeners
2: so i mean you can do the bark if you're in a pine tree um you gotta explain. <laughs> Uh, If I was in something besides the one-sticking cause I will tell you this, the the one downside to one-sticking is if you have to come down for any reason, I could rappel down and be down in no time. But to be able to get back to that one stick, like you basically got to bring the one stick down with you Mm -hmm. um, at least halfway. Um, So if I was in a typical setup, what I would do is come down the tree and you can make that noise. I think the longer this that noise goes on for probably more beneficial like because i mean i was sitting there for a good five or ten minutes you know going through all the rope um you know packing it up packing up everything you know my backpack um so i mean like you know i think the more sound that you can make in those situations probably the better off you are so if you're in a climber climb down that tree make some noise climb back up if you wanted to like i don't i don't think it really matters um but i mean you could tie a rope or tie something heavy you know to your your pull-up rope um i've done this before um take that and you know tie it to a you know really loud you know limb or something like mm-hmm.
0: that um get some kind of ground disturbance Some some kind of noise that these uh The deer can kind of hear and like, okay, there's something rustling around over there. If you got
2: dry leaves, like in a tree, like in its uh, small limb, I've done that before.
0: What about an old Richard walking bag?
2: That would be a really good idea. Yeah.
0: I was talking to somebody today about building, making some. And Um, I'm kind of
2: confused too because um, I've been in a couple of scenarios, especially in Missouri, where you grunt and you think a deer can hear you. And a deer can't hear you, but you do it louder and the deer... Is like, oh, that was a grunt. But, like, when it comes to leaves rustling and stuff, like, they just seem like they can hear that stuff better versus a grunt. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the tone or, or what.
0: Or, or they might have heard the grunt, but they're just like, I don't really care. I'm like, I'm not going to react to it. Yeah, maybe so. I don't know. So, um, but anyway. All right, cool. So, so Michael. So, that's going
2: to be my game plan. I'm going to the thickets. i want to make some noise. Hopefully, I'll come out with a buck. But I'll tell you this. Probably in another week we're going to be coming into that last quarter and it's going to be money. It's going to be good.
0: Yeah. It's going to be real good. So so advice for our listeners coming up to this next week. I mean, I mean you, yeah. Yeah, I think this episode is coming out tomorrow. So what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah,
2: go hunt black warrior and kill you some bucks.
1: <laughs> I like it. All right. Uh let's do reviews. Um, we got a whole bunch of new reviews. I really don't know which one, uh, we left off on, uh, Jacob. Do you know which one we read last?
0: I, I, I don't, uh, so, I, I don't. We'll have to go back and figure out kind of where, where you think we kind of stopped at.
1: Okay. I, th- I think the first one is from Little Bucknuts.
0: Yeah, oh, oh, actually I think we, okay. We need to reread that one. Because then, yeah, I think the next one is old Big Buck Nuts.
1: Okay. All right. Never mind, I lied. No, no there's no. a whole bunch. There's a whole, all right. So we have a reviewer. His name is Big Buck Nuts. <laughs> He's left a bunch of reviews um, over the past. Oh, wait, no, we did read that one, didn't we? No,
0: we we yeah, read that yeah, one Yes, yet. we
1: did. No, no, we definitely read it because that's the guy that talks smack about your, uh, your, your your refusal to use Google Drive. And he said, my eight-year-old nephew will gladly show you how to do it. Hey, man, ever since you did that and you talked smack, I think you hurt Jacob's feeling because he started using it. So I'm going to need more listeners to pile on Jacob to get him to do stuff
0: (laughs) because it it worked like a charm. Like a charm. No, uh, okay, you're looking at the wrong one. I'm talking about the, um, yeah, hold on. The next one I think is is another great episode uh, from November fourth.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah that that that's where that's where we're starting. All right, I'll read that one. Uh, this one his uh, his name is a bunch of random numbers. He says another great episode, five stars. Y'all have a lot of great guests on, but Mister Bill but Mister Bill Thompson has to be my favorite. His knowledge and insight on How Buck's move has been a real eye opener. I keep hearing you guys apologize for going down the rabbit hole and getting off track, but I believe that is some of your best information's uh, comes from those portions. Look forward to you guys having him on again. Thanks for a great show and stay Southern.
0: Awesome. Next one is from Team Teamer Gamer Swag and Five Stars Best Hunting Podcast Period. The hosts bring on guests with a wealth of knowledge or with a wealth of woodsmanship uh, that will keep you, oh my gosh, that will (laughs) keep you entertained. Oh, God. Uh, Throughout the process. I've been listening since the start of the podcast, and it keeps getting better and better each year. Thank you for what you do. Keep up the good work, Michael. You get that one from Dry okay. Mountain
2: Blood trailing episode. Dry Mountain Hunter. I'm not sure how many times I got a request tracking episode, but it would be very helpful for hunters to know the do's and don'ts as well as guys who are training dogs. Keep it up with the good content.
0: I'll say, this, oh, Gun Dog it Yourself podcast. Got a couple episodes on that. wish I would not know the episode numbers. Yep. But, uh... G-D-E-Y. Go check right, it out. All right, Andrew, you get, the, you get the next one. All right,
1: we have a response. Big Buck Nuts has chimed in. And, uh, he says, Little Buck Nuts, snort, wheeze, stomp, shakes head. Boy, let me tell you something. I got more length in my right head than you got in your whole main beam. I keep all the does in the tri- Tri-State area locked down. I've dodged more road hunters fire lighters, man drives, dog drives, corn piles, mineral licks, cameras mock scrapes, fake rubs, fake dough love juice, and all the Colin Richard fought could ever muster up. So, little Buck Nuts, if you think you're, you've woke up enough this morning to uh, come work my scrapes, then think again, young Buck. Go back to your thicket with the cricket and reevaluate your place in the draw and go get some black on your tarsal, son. Go on, get, lay down somewhere now. So now he's brought... Yet another uh, well-known reviewer in the Thicket Cricket. So I'll be interested to see if we get a response from the Thicket Cricket here. <laughs> <laughs> this is I love like
2: this the uh, so much. I this is, is it's a this. series. This is like the Chick Fil A Wars, you know, the like, like the sign wars, yeah. you know. Yes, like- <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, y'all are my favorite. That's that's fantastic. All right, Jacob, yeah, you're,
0: you're up next. All right, this is from Marcus One Five Four. How did I miss this? Five stars. Uh, Big fail on my part for not picking up your podcast after hearing Parker McD mention you nearly two years ago. I've been listening for several years, or I'm sorry, I've been listening for several weeks now, and I love the knowledge dropped from your guests like Tim Knight and Richard Fott. You guys are my top pod, or you guys are at the top of my podcast list now. Awesome. All right, Mike, your turn, sir. It got pulled up right there for you. That one right there. Okay.
2: Uh, this is by uh, uh, JJMAJ. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Um, y- y'all pick some
0: weird usernames. <laughs>
2: Turning Hunters into Killers. I listened to Mr. Bobby Worthington's episode on closing the deal on my drive to yesterday's hunt. Uh, his words were fresh in my mind when I made a heart shot on a nice little buck on the Virginia public land last night, my first from the saddle. I have a tendency to move too quickly and also shoot too far back with mr uh worthington's guidance i was able to just stay focused on that elbow and sadly for the deer's mama he didn't make it <laughs> <laughs> thanks for everything guys you're truly making the best hunting podcast out there
1: Bam. sweet thank you sir all right last one mr oh. mr mr hr iddle something like that um absolute best podcast five stars if you don't like the show, you don't like clean underwear. Started listening a couple years ago. Can't say en- <laughs> can't say enough how much I appreciate these guys for doing what they do. We have two public land deer on the wall because of these guys' efforts. Thanks, men. Keep up the good work. That's fantastic, man. I love hearing that kind of stuff. Congrats on the two bucks. That's fantastic. I'd love for you to send us a picture of them. I'd love to hear about that. Um, so. Yep, that's all the reviews. Thanks, everybody, for uh, leaving them, if, uh, if you haven't got it already. Um, if you go leave a review, we'll read it on the show. We'll read all of them on the outros. So, appreciate all the reviewers. Guys, y'all have anything else?
0: I'll say this. You know, we didn't say this at the beginning of the podcast, but make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Also, guys, if you're listening to the episode, or men and women, because I know there's some women that listen to the episodes as well, please share the podcast with a buddy. It would help us out tremendously. So you like these episodes? One of your favorite episodes? Send it to a buddy and let them get hooked as well. And we greatly appreciate that. Uh, so yeah,
2: seven hundred ninety-one uh, reviews. Well, like we're we're closing in on eight hundred. Like eight hundred. I would love to see eight hundred. Just think about thousand, dude. We're we're
0: Rocking dude. Y'all are killing it. Y'all are killing it Rocking. for real. Rocking and rolling, bro. Rocking and rolling. All right, old Maxwell. Anything, anything left for us?
1: That's gonna be it, fellers. Um, good luck to everybody hunting this week, this weekend coming up. Uh, make sure you tune into Monday's episode. We got a great one planned for you guys. Make sure you tune into the outro next week to hear about Michael's uh, trials and tribulations. Yeah, I'll Missouri. be able to
2: tell you what happened.
1: <laughs> yes, sir. All right. So, thanks everybody for listening,
2: and y'all stay southern.
1: All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast. This show was literally made for you. It is an excellent group of people that are going to be there. A lot of whitetail killers from around the Southeast are going to be there. You're going to get to talk to them, shake their hand, learn from them in person, make some connections. And guys, we get a lot of questions about